You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. We are in our final week in this series on evangelism. It's called Intentional Evangelism for Normal People. So it's aimed at people like me and you because we're normal, right? Right, we're normal. But yet we want to talk about the Lord. We want to witness about our faith and share how Christ has changed our lives. So we're looking at how we do that in the, in the just normal flow of work life, of, of life with our kids and traveling and hobbies. And, and I hope it's been helpful. I've received just a ton of, of really good feedback from you. In fact, this week is actually an extra week. I told you last week I was a little frustrated. I couldn't get done and I'm not sure when I'd fit it in. And I got numerous texts and emails, which I love feedback, you know that, saying, Todd, this is your interruption Keep marching. We'll do it next. We went to our staff and said, hey, can you guys adjust with me? And they, are, they just said, easily. And we've got a great staff who just so easily just follows. And I just appreciate them. And so we pushed everything back. And we're going to cover week four, which is the call for fluency. Let me kind of bring you up to speed to where we, how we got here, okay? We've been looking at basically Acts 17. Go ahead and turn there if you would. At the way in which Paul modeled evangelism. It's not the only way. Uh, but it does show us some patterns for sharing our faith that work. And so we've been looking at that, and they were basically three areas. I'll show it to you in that Venn diagram I showed you last week. We saw the area of perspective uh, in verse 16. We looked at the issue of frequency in verse 17. And then we saw the idea of margin about verse 19. If you want more information, if you're new or just here for the first time, listen to the message on our website, and you can catch up. But all of those, as good as they are, And when they merge together in the middle, you know, it's kind of like the gospel conversation moment when we cross the threshold, cross the pain line, and we share about our faith. We kind of looked at that. But as good as those are, there's nothing magical about creating margin or instilling frequency or even having the right perspective. There's nothing magical in that. We don't save people. So, So what is it then that in living that way, What is it that actually, I'll use this phrase, forgive me, kind of does the trick. What happens that people come to Christ when we're creating margin and and instilling frequency and having perspective? How does that happen? It's all about the gospel. It's having the courage to cross the pain line and share the message of the gospel. That's why this has to be wrapped in what I call gospel fluency. All of your margin, all of your frequency... All of your perspective, I'll show you the next slide, it all has to be wrapped kind of around and and within the idea of gospel fluency. The ability, watch this, to talk about the truths of Christ, the truths of the gospel, the truths of Jesus in a way that's fluid and natural and that speaks into the changing situations of people's life. That's what we mean by gospel fluency, all right? In fact, let me give you a more precise definition of this phrase, gospel fluency, because that's what we're going to call you to today. We're going to call you to gospel fluency. It's actually the ability to connect the unchanging truths of the gospel, the unchanging truths of Jesus, who he is and what he's done, is connecting those and conversing about those in the changing situations of life. So in your relationships and conversations, which I think is the sphere of evangelism that we all are already living in, in that sphere, conversation, relationship, as people share their brokenness, as people share their victories, as the pain and passion points 
are surfaced in the conversation, the ability to connect. Well, this is a moment when I can share the unchanging truths of the gospel. When they're kind of sharing their highs and lows, that's, that's gospel fluency. It's getting to, the, to what really matters most in the middle of, and I'll just be really frank with you, often what doesn't matter as much. We think it does. Would you agree with that? But in reality, our eternal destiny matters most. And so a fluent person in the gospel, someone whose native or mother tongue are the truths of the gospel, the truth about Jesus, that's kind of your native language, then when the time arises in someone's life and they're sharing highs and lows, brokenness, victories, you can, you can just begin to converse about what matters most. I mean, that's gospel fluency. It's when it's natural to talk about all right? I think that's one of the things that we're going to discuss today is how and why to become naturally fluent with these important truths. Let me answer the why question before I get to the how. It's because there's nothing inherently salvific about what you say if it's not the gospel. That's why. <laughs> Are you hearing me well? And it's true for me too. I, I can't persuade someone with my words. I've not got the ability to convince someone into the kingdom. I don't save anyone and neither do you. Are you hearing me, church? It is the gospel that saves. So if we're frequent with the right perspective and all the margin we create, but we never share the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done, what good is that? You see, I really think this is why in Romans 1.16, before Paul ever gets into the gospel, in chapters, you know, mainly 1 through 11. Before he ever gets into this incredible treatise on the gospel, from a legal perspective, he makes this statement, Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for what? Salvation. Not your margin, not my frequency, not our perspective, not my words, not your methods, not your tips, tricks, or strategies. The gospel. And if we never get to the gospel... If that's not fluently on our lips, then there, what good is margin, frequency, and perspective? Are you with me? So today, in this kind of interrupted, surprising fourth week, let's see if we can commit to and learn, what does it mean then to get to the gospel? How can I be fluent with the message that actually matters most, and that's how people are born again? That the Spirit of God uses the Word of God, the Gospel, to birth people into His kingdom. The best example for that, I think, is in Acts 17, or at least a good example of that is Acts 17. We've been in there four weeks, and we're going to see how Paul, in such a beautifully fluid manner, just kind of walks through the Gospel after being invited to the Areopagus. Remember his perspective in 16? That's verse 16 of 17. And of course, his frequency in 17 and then his um, margin in 19 allowed him now to be at the Areopagus. But what does he say now? Let's read about it, can we? I'm going to leave the reference on the screen the whole time, and then I'll, I'll walk you through about four elements after we read all the verses. But let's just read the verses first, kind of catch the weight of them in one sitting here. It's 22 through 34. Paul now stands in the midst of the Areopagus... And he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He perceived that because he saw before he shared. That was principle one, remember? And he was noticing all the idols. 
As I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. Referring, of course, back up to verse 16, the city was full of idols. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. I mean, they were so committed to figuring out what they were to worship that they created a God, or should say an altar to a God they may have missed. Like, you know, in case we missed one, we don't want him to feel left out, so let's just create a kind of a generic altar. To any God we may have missed, here's worship. I mean, it's kind of crazy if you think about it. Paul uses this example and this uh, opportunity, I should say, to, dis- to declare to them the one and only true God. Beginning in verse, what is it, 23, he says, This I now proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Notice he's starting with God here. He's in their world, yes, but he's not staying in their world only. I would say he's man-aware but God-centered. And he says he's not actually far from each one of us. In other words, God's sovereign, he's creator, he's in control, And yet he's knowable. He loves us. He's made himself accessible. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. Some of your own poets have even said we're indeed his offspring. And so he says in verse 29, since we are God's creation or offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. In other words, since we're God's offspring, why are we thinking we can actually make God? See, that's what they did. They were making the idols. So the, the God they were worshiping was their offspring. Do you follow that? And Paul's saying, guys, you got it backwards. We don't make God. He makes us. Why, why would you worship something you make? If you make the idol, then you have the power over it, and yet you're worshiping what you make? That's just illogical. And I think he's showing that here. He said, we don't make God and then ascribe to it the power over us. God makes us. That's why he's worthy of worship, which is what's going on in this passage. He says, he made us. He's not like the silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. In the times of ignorance, God overlooked. In other words, the, the times in the Old Testament when God could have judged everyone on the spot for their idolatry. He says he has shown great patience and he has taken now out his wrath on this one named Jesus. We'll get to that in a minute. But that's why God was patient because he knew that there was a final sacrifice coming. He says now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So the the implication here is that that man has done something wrong. What have we done wrong? We've been worshiping the gods we're making instead of worshiping the God who made us. So repent from this. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So if we don't repent of self-worship, God will judge us. He'll do that through Jesus Christ, the man he's appointed. And he's given assurance to this by raising him from the dead. The implication being that he must have died. I tend to think in this culture, being just a few years Uh, from the crucifixion and resurrection, they were aware of what happened to this man named Jesus. And Paul is asserting, 
the real judgment for our sin occurred at that place on the cross when Jesus died and was raised again. And the fact that he was raised is proof positive. God is satisfied. And if you'll repent and believe in Jesus, God will not hold your sin against you because he already took it out on Jesus, this one that was crucified and raised. It's kind of the point here Paul's making. There must have been some knowledge among the group of that event to some degree. And so Paul gets to the gospel pretty quickly, doesn't he? Starting with their world, but beginning with God's creative, sovereign, holy power, he moves to man's brokenness, then he describes how they can repent and believe in Christ, and that he is alive and in victory reigning today. Well, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this, and so Paul left their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Isn't that good news? There wasn't 100% buy-in. Some wanted more information. Some said, we're done. But some did believe. You ought to circle the word believe in 33. Draw it back up to the word repent in verse 30. Because this is the response they gave. They repented of worshiping what they would make. And they instead worshiped God and believed in Jesus. Among them were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with him. So uh, several folks believed. So in this last concluding set of verses in this chapter, here's what we find. Paul being very fluent with the gospel and the truths that don't change even in the middle of changing situations. Let me kind of give you four words that I think will walk you through Paul's understanding of the gospel here as well as in other places it's a very good model to follow about how to be gospel fluent. I'll give you four words. God, man, Christ, response. Can you say them with me? Here we go. God, man, Christ, response. We've taught on this before. These are four words that we think are a very good a pathway to the gospel. You can use the words in this week's Lighthouse Study Guide. Creation, fall, rescue, restoration. Really good words there as well. But regardless of how you kind of go about this, these components, and I hate the word elements because it makes it almost seem like a, like a classroom environment, but just kind of give me some space here. These concepts and ideas have to be part of the conversation when you cross the pain line. If you leave out these elements, you're not giving a true gospel. Are you listening? You're not giving a true gospel if you leave out the elements of God, man, Christ in response. There has to be the bad news with the good news. And so, in every instance in the Bible, this is what's done. There is some type of verbal journey through these elements. In this text, he talks about God in a number of ways. I'll just focus on two briefly as God as creator and then God as judge. Now, notice how this connects to what's going on in the city. In the city, there's lots of worship to all types of gods, correct? And this bothers Paul, right? This agitates him inwardly. So what does he do in his conversation? He talks about how the the one who really deserves all the worship is the creator, not the created one. They were making idols. Why worship them? They didn't make you. He says, here's the one who made you. He's holy. He's righteous. He's actually set apart from you. He's not like you. You're actually like him. We're in his image. And so he makes a good distinction here in saying, Quit worshiping what you make. Worship the one who made you. And if you don't, then he has the right as the creator to judge us for not worshiping him. I mean, his conversation 
it's, it's very theologically right, and yet it's conversationally aware of where he's at. And situationally kind of, his situational uh, IQ is pretty strong here. So he starts with God. God's holiness, his otherness, he's the creator. And so we, and I'll use this phrase, we owe him our worship. If we don't, then we're judged. And notice this phrase in the Bible. Uh, it's about verse 29 to about 31a that, that says God calls all people everywhere to repent. In other words, God is calling people to worship him. And they were not surprised when he said that. Now, he used the word repentance, but notice this. He's actually addressing something they're trying to do. They're trying to worship. You catch that? They're searching. They're looking. And Paul says you're looking in all the wrong places. It's the creator. It's God who's calling you to repentance, which means turn from worshiping the things you've made and worship the one who made you. You see, that lets me know something. Man is broken. We love to worship ourselves and things that we create, don't we? Why? Because we know something is missing inside. There's this, there's this hole, there's this gap, there's this thing that we can't fulfill and satisfy. And so we search and we look and we long. We try this relationship, that hobby, this toy, that thing. But nothing will fill the gap, solve the dilemma. Only God can. So God is holy. He's the sovereign creator and judge. Man is broken because we're trying to satisfy our longing apart from God. That longing is created, of course, uh, that longing is there because of sin. We've all sinned. And, and in fact, not worshiping God is the sin. We've fallen short of his glory. We don't worship him perfectly. We don't seek him. None seek after God, the Bible says. So here's God in his holiness, man in his brokenness, but God has also provided a, a solution to that, this eternal predicament we find ourselves in. And it's the man he's appointed. His name is Jesus Christ. And he's accomplished the solution to our eternal predicament in his death and resurrection. That's the core of the gospel, okay, church? And Paul talks about it here. He talks about the resurrection which by implication is talking about Christ's death. And he alludes and explicitly says it's repentance and belief in this man that God has appointed. So understand something. In the most, watch this, diverse of situations, in the most pluralistic of environments, Paul nails exclusivity perfectly. He'd have been a great guy to interview on CNN or Fox, wouldn't he? Like, hey, are there many ways? No. There's one way, repentance and belief in the one man God has appointed. Like, so you just can't get away from this. Christianity is exclusive by its very nature. One God to worship who sent one man to redeem us. Repenting of self-worship and believing in that man, that's how we're saved. And if we leave that out of conversations at some point, if we get to this pain line, we cross it, and we're talking, and we just never talk about these important core truths and concepts. We are giving a false gospel. So, this is why I think fluency matters. Because man is broken, God is holy, but Christ has redeemed us. Amen? 
So this demands a response. And this is what happens in the last part of the chapter, of course. Some were hostile, some were hungry. These four elements really describe the journey through the gospel. And they comprise the elements that I think we have to be fluent in. Again, four words kind of summarize them. God, man, Christ response. Let me give you some scriptures that could also kind of be the same pathway. When I was a kid, we learned it as the Romans road. I'm hearing chuckles from those above 40, I think, right? But you know, it's actually a very good understanding of the gospel road. For instance, Romans 1.18, that God is revealing his wrath against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. Why is God revealing his wrath in that way? Because he's holy and man is not. Okay, so God is holy. He's revealing his wrath against all unrighteousness. Well, who are the unrighteous ones? Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.9, God has concluded that all are under sin, both the Jew and the Greek. So, okay, so God is holy and he's revealing his wrath against sin, which is against everyone because we've all sinned. What gives? That seems like a predicament I can't solve. You can't, so we need a redeemer. So Romans 5.8, but God showed his love to us in that while we were still sinners, all under sin, Christ died for us. You see, Christ's death and resurrection bridges the eternal predicament we're in that you could never solve by your effort, birth, works, merit. You could never solve because you'll never be holy. But Christ has come and died in our place, lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we should have died. And in doing that, as the perfect God-man, he mediates between us and God, Paul said. So who is the go-between now between holy God and unholy broken man? It's Jesus, who was perfect God and perfect man. So often you see the drawing of the the two sides with nothing between, but then the cross is between them, bridging the gap. That's a good illustration. Jesus and his death and resurrection bridges the gap between God and man. Why? Because he is God and he is man. He's perfect in his life. He's perfect in his sacrifice. He was raised from the dead as proof, as vindication, that his sacrifice was accepted by God. And so today, all who trust, repent, and believe in Jesus, watch this, they're assured their sins are forgiven because God raised Jesus from the dead. He didn't leave him in the grave. So you are with Christ. You are alive with him because of what God has done. He's accepted the offering of Jesus the God-man and extended the benefits to you. This is the gospel. God is holy. Man is broken, but Christ is perfect and redeems us. And now he asks all men everywhere to turn from worshiping things that aren't God and to worship God and to trust in Jesus. That's called repentance and belief. This is the gospel, and these are the concepts that must kind of be on your lips in a fluid way as you interact and converse with people. Are you tracking so far? Making sense? Not saying it's easy. I want to make sure we understand this is gospel fluency. Understanding that what four words should kind of be on our lips, same with me? God, man, Christ, response. Okay? Now, speaking of response, let me just take a moment and show you briefly a chart that I kind of drew in my study time. I was going to use our lab today and kind of draw it for you, but it would take longer. I'll just drew a picture and show it to you here 
as a JPEG. I was thinking through this chapter and how Paul dealt with the idols in Athens, and I realized that in just the previous chapter, Acts 16, he dealt with the idols of Thessalonica. And we know this because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, at the end of that chapter, he says about the Thessalonian believers, you turned from idols to God to serve the living and true God. I thought, that's interesting. Paul is consistently dealing with idols in people's life and seeing them turn from idols to to love God. What does that look like? What does that moment of response look like when the gospel comes into someone's life and they turn from idols to God? Here's kind of how I drew it based on the First Thessalonians passage as well as Acts 17. It seems like there's a searching going on. Are you with me? They made idols to every known deity and then they made one to one they forgot, right? That's Acts 17, right? So there's this searching in the soul of man. Not everyone is aware of it, by the way. But at some point... We begin to make and find idols to kind of solve our searching. We realize that never really works in the long term, and so we begin to experience conviction that I'm not perfect. I can't create the perfect God. I can't find the perfect solution. Something's wrong that I can't seem to fix. That's called conviction. It comes in a variety of ways, but conviction always precedes regeneration. So we find ourselves searching, we're longing, But then we're under conviction, and at some point in that conviction, we hear the truth of Jesus, and we realize, I've been worshiping the wrong thing. God has actually, he created me. I don't make a God, and he's created me to actually worship him, and he deserves my worship. We hear how we can do that through Jesus, who's satisfied all of God's wrath, and so at some point, we turn. We repent. Repentance is what happens as we are convicted of our pursuit of self-worship and realize that God is actually deserves to be worshipped. So we repent of that and we see Jesus in all of his glory and all of his perfection. That, wow, I don't have to keep striving or working that Jesus has done everything to make me right with God. I simply believe and rest. I mean, that's like one of these, whew, amen, the moment the gospel comes into your life and you realize it's not at all about you, but about Jesus, that he's done everything and the weight of sin falls off your shoulder, God declares you justified because of what Christ has done, that all of your sin never outweighs the power of the cross. And so you shed all of that, and you embrace the cross, and you thank God for saving you in spite of you. Suddenly you find yourself trusting Jesus because he's perfect, his sacrifice is perfect, And because you trust him, you serve him, which is, in actuality, worshiping Jesus. You're no longer serving your idols that you made. I'll do whatever you say to to feel better, to make this work. You're not doing that. You're serving and worshiping Jesus. He's the one who died for you and gave his life for you. He's the one appointed by God to save us. Do you see the turn here? This is kind of all involved in repentance and belief. And if this has not happened in your life, I want to be crystal clear here. I want to be like Windex, okay? Listen very carefully. If this has not occurred, you're not born again. Because God won't be added to a list. He won't be added to your collection of gods. He'll be worshipped exclusively. He's your creator and only creator, and he will and deserves your, your, he'll demand and deserve your worship. Those who don't, At one point, sometime in the future, God will judge through Jesus. But how much better it is, instead of waiting for judgment, to be saved now by Jesus. 
by turning from worship of self and things we create to God and trusting the man he's appointed Christ to save us from our self-worship and sin and then begin to worship him. This is the essence of repentance and belief. This is what occurs when you cross the pain line and share the truth about Jesus politely, accurately, compassionately, but when you have the courage to to talk in a gospel-fluent fashion, then in that moment, here's what happens. Watch, church. You're freaked out, I'm sure. You're scared. You're almost like, oh, man, what are they going to think? And then suddenly the Holy Spirit does what only the Holy Spirit can do when the gospel is shared. He awakens someone's heart to believe. And they say, oh, that's what I need. And just like Stacy was saying, God's love overwhelms them. The Holy Spirit comes in and seals them, and they realize, wow, this is the love I've been waiting for. This is how my longing is filled. God is my creator, and I owe him my worship. And we lay our lives down for God. You can't explain that. You can't produce that. You cannot manufacture that. All you can do is sow the seed of the gospel and watch the Holy Spirit do what only the Holy Spirit can do. Amen, church? This is why I think being gospel fluent matters. Because if we never shared this message, how would we think someone would ever get saved? Because the gospel is the power of God to salvation. So can we commit to some type and some level of gospel fluency so that people are saved? Amen. Now as you look at this and you see these words, God, man, Christ's response, I think you'll begin to connect why we talk about this so much at our church, in our small groups, in our gatherings, even just personally. The gospel is central to everything we share. It's the power of God. It's why I like that little song so much that's so simple, but it contains each of these truths. And I sing it a lot to myself. We've sung it here several times. Would you be willing to sing it with me now? Lisette, can you join me for a minute? Um, we're not done yet, but it's okay to pause and sing for a minute, isn't it? I'm not the best singer. I'm not like Josh. I don't have those abilities, but I can at least carry a tune to sing with you, can't we? Let's sing a song that actually talks about these four things. It's actually called, believe it or not, the gospel song. Imagine that, right? But notice how the words walk us through these concepts. I want you to sing this with me because it's one way you can begin to practice gospel fluency. Julie will say sometimes, she'll tell you if you ask her, I'll be humming this around the house or I'll sing it because it reminds me of really what has to be close to my heart. It goes like this. If you know it, sing along. Holy God in love became Simple, isn't it? Can we try it again?
again. There's some bad news in that song, isn't there? But there's some great news in that song. That's the gospel. Thanks, Lisette. I appreciate that. Now, I want to warn you of something. This is not something you construct. God, man, Christ response. I've got the words down, put on my list. I'll learn it. I'll say it. I'll get it. Perfect, Todd. I won't miss a beat. The gospel isn't something you construct. It's something you ingest. It's not a learning issue. It's a love issue. And what I hope has happened today, without even being aware of it, is that you have become a little more gospel fluent. Not by learning four words as in an academic way, but by realizing, wow, that's what God has done for me in Christ? Because the gospel, you won't share it probably until you really own it. And I believe that salvation because of the gospel, understanding that, leads to sharing about the gospel. Again, it's not a learning issue here, church. This is a love issue. And too many of us aren't deeply, insatiably saturated with the gospel. We're more full of ourselves and our own idols. Is it any wonder that we struggle to talk about the gospel? And so I've been challenged, and I want to challenge you. Ingest the gospel. See the treasure and wonder of what God has done for you in Christ. My guess is as that overwhelms you and overtakes you, it will come out on your lips. So here's principle number four. We've given three in this series, right? Number one was see first, share second. Number two was it's not just a presentation, but an ongoing conversation. Number three was if we're going to interact where they live, we have to be willing to be interrupted where I live. Here's the fourth principle out gospel fluency specifically. To go and share the gospel spontaneously and accurately, I need to know and love the gospel insatiably. You see, I really wasn't going to bring you in here to teach you how to share the gospel. I mean, I, I guess we could. In some ways, we've done that for three weeks. But that's not how we share the gospel. That's not how we become fluent. We become fluent best by seeing what God has done for us. We know and love it insatiably. Because it's not something we construct. It's something we ingest. And I just want to ask you this morning, just to ingest the gospel for a few moments. Wonder at what God has done for you. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we were sinners hostile against God, he reconciled us to himself by the death of his son. Just let that blanket you. This is how you become gospel fluent. It's not by constructing a plan to present. It's by ingesting. 
the operation that took place when God freed you from sin and brought you to life from death. I think this is what Paul did in Acts 17 as well. My prayer is that we'll continue to learn from it, yes, but that we'll fall in love with it on a regular, daily basis. Let me painfully prove this to you as I wrap things up. Say, Todd, what are you painfully proving? Let me painfully prove to you that it's not something we construct, it's something we should ingest, that it's not a learning issue but a love issue. And I realize I'm going to risk some things here, but I think it's worth it. If I were to say to you this morning that we've developed a brand new app for your phone that will help you be intentional about your evangelism, if I said, yes, you can download it starting today, and every time you share the gospel, every time that the opportunity arises and you cross the pain line, you cross the threshold, and you in some way talk about God, man, Christ response, you have the courage to just get it out there and see if the power of God will lead to salvation in that moment. Every time you do that, just take your phone out with your new app and hit the little uh, green button with a dollar sign on it and we'll deposit $1,000 into your account. All you got to do is leave us your debit or credit card number. How are you going to do that? We'll put it in the app. It'll be stored. It's totally secure. Whatever the words are, encryption. I don't know what those things are, right? But we'll, we'll do all the necessary things. And when you're out witnessing an evangelism, just hit the green button whenever you share the gospel, 1000 bucks right to your account. You know what? Don't fire me today. You know what? Some of you by the end of the day would have tens of thousands of dollars in your account. You know why I know that? Because when someone shared that with me a few weeks ago, one of our members came and told me that. He said, Todd, face it, that's what a lot of folks would respond to that. I said, I know, I, I might more as well. And, and I just, I just... I was grieved by that. You know why we would share quicker if that were the case? If that hypothetical scenario were actually true, you know why we would have folks by noon becoming five and six thousand dollars richer by lunchtime? By the evening meal, they'd have ten, fifteen thousand. You know why by the week's end, some of you'd be like, man, I got no financial debt at all now. Love witnessing. No, you don't. You love money. See, that's the reality that's hard to face, isn't it? That there's just some things we love more than the gospel. And if in your heart right now you're wishing we had that app, then you got some issues. You need to, you got to do some heart work. Because sharing the gospel isn't a financial windfall. We're not even dealing with someone's financial issues. We're talking about an eternal situation with men's and women's souls. So, so what do you love? Because what you love, you talk about. And my sense is that sometimes I don't love the gospel enough. I was grieved that I, that I was in some ways thinking, I would find more ways to share too. My heart was pricked, was convicted. I just had to bring you into that same loop. That's why we're slow to share. We love the wrong things. Maybe today God has just moved you out of that even a little bit. Maybe in the conviction of it. Maybe in the realization of it. 
He's moved you away from loving the wrong things, your idols, to loving him and his work through Jesus on your behalf. That's the ingestion that has to occur for us to intentionally, spontaneously, and accurately share Jesus with others, okay? Just quickly, I want to share with you three things to do to make sure you keep ingesting the gospel well. I'll show them at one time to you, and I'll be done in 60 seconds. Rehearse the gospel to yourself daily. Maybe you'll sing that song. Maybe you'll take the four words, read the Romans Road, number of ways. But every day, rehearse the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of the treasure of Jesus Christ. Uh, Not so that it's a tool to use, not as a long pole to leverage some with, just so you can remind yourself, God has been gracious to me. Secondly, pray the gospel in groups. Even today, we'll have seven or eight small groups meet. I would encourage those who are praying in their small groups tonight to pray the gospel. Yes, use theological terms to actually thank the Lord for his work on your behalf because it reminds others of what we believe. It reminds yourself and it kind of roots you in what matters most. It breeds gratitude and wonder. Does that make sense? So pray the gospel in groups. Those of you who are listening, man, join in with a hearty amen. Rejoice. And then... At least on a weekly basis, you can even do this daily, but on a regular basis, just celebrate the gospel with a trusted fellow believer by just rejoicing with them verbally. You can do this here in the service, perhaps, as we greet. You can do it in the gym sometimes. Maybe on, your, uh, on the way to Lighthouse with your spouse, or maybe you're you leaving small group, maybe at work with a, another believer, but just at random times. And we do this with Julian and this a lot with each other. We'll just say something like this, like, man, I just can't believe that God has saved me. Or she may say to me, I'm so thankful God's forgiven me of my past. With our staff sometimes, we'll be having lunch together, just talking, and we'll just simply share kind of almost spontaneously, it's amazing that God would save us, isn't it? It's just kind of a way to celebrate the gospel with a trusted believer. I think if you just, at least these three things, will help you begin to ingest the gospel so that when the time comes to share it, it's not like you're constructing a speech, (laughs) You're instead speaking about the overflow of what God has done in your life. And you're going to get it right because it matters, right? The true gospel matters. But you're not getting it right for a classroom's sake. You're getting it right because you own it personally. Three ways to help you with that. None of these will matter, though, if you don't, first of all, believe the gospel. So can I ask you a simple question? Has everyone here believed in the gospel? I don't answer out loud. But could you just answer privately and personally? Because I'm not talking about something that matters just tomorrow, even though it does, or just next week, even though it does. I'm talking about something that matters eternally. In the life now, Paul calls it, and the life hereafter. And unless we believe in the gospel, the work of Jesus and the person of Jesus, that he is God, lived among us, and died in our place, Until we believe that, we are under God's judgment and one day we'll be judged for not worshiping him. Oh, how much better it is today to today believe in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and avoid judgment and experience salvation. Say, Todd, what does that look like? Paul says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, again, back to that Romans road, that whoever believes in their heart that 
that Jesus Christ is Lord, confesses with their mouth that he's been raised from the dead. In other words, you believe Jesus is God and that he did what he said he did. He died and rose again. When you believe and confess those two things, the Bible says that person then is saved. He goes on to say later that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's as simple as what Stacy did when she's driving on Magazine Road. And she said, God, save me a sinner. It's as simple as what Craig did. Crying out for God to save him in spite of his works and effort. It's as simple as what many of you have done. At some point in your life when you said, God, I believe Jesus is your son and that he died and rose again. Will you save me through Jesus? That's repentance and faith. And if you've never trusted the gospel this morning, could I ask you as I close, would you today believe in the good news of Jesus Christ? Let's pray together, can we? We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons. Thanks for listening.